0: How different tidal harbours look at high and low tides. It's not only their appearance that changes, but their functions too. Great and mighty things happen at high tides. This is when voyages begin and end, whereas we associate a very different set of dynamics with low tides. And in this part about seeking God we're going to be looking very explicitly at some of the things that happen at low tide, things that are exposed in our life, things the Lord is having to attend to, and see that they are in their own way just as important as the high tides. You see, when we see mighty victories such as Elijah's on Mount Carmel, It wasn't at the time that he won the victory over the prophets of Baal. It was the fruit of all his seeking of God in silent places, in withdrawn places, that equipped him to function at that moment of great high tide. The Israelites could have shouted as loudly as they liked on their fifth or sixth circumnavigation of the walls of Jericho. But not a stone would have cracked or budged until the high tide of God's appointed time. We're going to be heading into some challenging territory in our thinking about these low tides. So it's good to start in a positive place. That low tides often provide us with opportunities to rest and regroup. And in that sense, we can look on them as being a bit like those fallow times that wise farmers through the centuries have always allowed their lands to enjoy, to give time for the soil to be rejuvenated, knowing that it will ultimately produce a better crop in the long run. Okay, some people make an idol out of their rest and leisure times, as if they were a divine right and that nobody and nothing is allowed to intrude on. Whereas from time to time the Lord needs us to be prepared to crack on with particular projects, or with something that he's laying on our heart. But there is a God-given principle to observe of the Sabbath rest, and it's important to keep that in mind. It's so often out of those times of rest that the Lord's best projects emerge and that ideas begin to develop in us that we can take up later. Now, in seafaring terms, low tides are often the right moment to mend nets and to notice things that need attending to and to gain perspective on things that have happened out at sea and in the course of our lives. It's so important to seek God about the things that are troubling us, challenging issues that we've consistently been failing in. By his mercy, leopards really can change their spots As we seek him. But it's easy to feel that nothing will change. Just think how much energy a ship's crew would waste if it were foolish enough to allow itself to be paralysed by the fear that the tide would never flow back in again. But isn't that what some of us effectively fear when things go slack and difficulties arise? Sometimes we start thinking that we're not as wholehearted for God as we once were, or that our best days lie in the past. We'll leave aside for the moment those who are caught up in such intense schedules and places that they really don't have much time to rest. My concern here is for those of us who do have access to more free time, that we make good use of it by having an eye for the main chance and finding creative ways to seek the Lord. What will help us here is cultivating that ability inside us to recognise when an opportunity to take a moment of rest is opening up and to use it. In all probability, we may not actually hear the Lord, the captain of our ship, actually saying, now's the time for shore leave, now's the time to rest, but with experience, we learn to recognise the signs. During one exceptionally low tide that I was going through, I remember standing on a cliff in Pembrokeshire overlooking Solver Harbour, reflecting that just as the waters flow constantly in and out of that harbour, so too would God's grace flow back in again to my life. And when we look at the scriptures, it's easy to identify the high tides in the lives of those we consider to be great like Moses as he bravely led the Israelites out of Egypt, but soon found himself trapped between the expanse of the sea and the pounding of Pharaoh's army bearing down upon him. Now that example was followed by what must surely rank as the most dramatic high tide of them all, which swept Pharaoh's chariots away. Moses had sought God's face just as the Lord had told him to, and the Lord had answered far above anything he could have imagined. Good for Moses for having the courage to keep seeking the Lord, even though Pharaoh had turned down flat his request to take the Israelites out of Egypt, even though the request had been God-inspired in the first place. But moments like that are like edited highlights in people's lives. Much of the time we have to face low tides, if we can mix the metaphor, even in wildernesses. Do you remember the time when God warned him to get back down the mountainside quick, because his people had started revolting? And Moses must have been tempted to reply when he found out what had been going on, Lord, your people are revolting! Moses' own brother joined in the all but universal backsliding and idolatry the moment his back was turned. And we can assume that Aaron would have been among those who repented when challenged. But the fact is that Moses was on his own at this time. Just as many people have to live for years as the only Christian in their families or as prophets without honour in their own towns or households. Even Jesus knew what it was to have a family who had neither the heart nor the ability to seek the Lord in the way that he did, let alone any real understanding of his heavenly mission. There really are challenging times that we associate with low tides, not least because these are the moments when we must be diligent in spotting the things that are trip hazards for us. Look at Colossians 3 verse 5. When Paul tells us to put away and to put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, whether sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, or that inordinate craving for money and possessions, which he calls straight out greed and idolatry. These things are rivals for affection for God, and none of us can serve two masters. Samson may have achieved a stunning victory over the Philistines in the hour of his death, but that was a victory that came about despite his earlier disobedience. Here was a called and gifted man who allowed himself to be bound not just by the physical ropes of his Philistine pursuers, but, like so many people, by a strong physical attraction. The truth is that what Delilah really loved wasn't Samson at all, but mammon. And David's fervent faith in slaying the giant Goliath didn't make him proof against falling for another of Satan's many-pronged temptations. As the years go by, we need vigilance beyond immediate celebration and sheer godly determination to carry on seeking him, like so many fine servants of the Lord, we lose the cutting edge of our desire to seek him and find our relationship with him starting to fade right away. It's so important to read the stories of men and women whom God is really using to fuel our own faith. These are the ongoing Acts of the Apostles. But as we read, it's important to remember that all the great seekers after God in Scripture went through numerous low-tide experiences, when for all the world it felt as though the Lord was paying no attention to their requests. These people did not have the benefit of hindsight as they waded through their discouraging times. Because we're so aware of how things eventually worked out, it's easy to forget or to play down what it must have been like for them to go through at the time. Think of Moses in the example I quoted just now, when after screwing up his courage to make his courageous appeals to Pharaoh to be allowed to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, he suffered the indignity of having further sanctions imposed on his people, and then they, in turn, turning against him. How good it was that he had the courage to return to the Lord and to pour out his heart to him. Why have you brought all this trouble on us, Lord? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's brought nothing but trouble on this people, and you've not rescued us at all. Seek the Lord, backash, Seek his face, continually, the psalmist urges. Not just in the midst of crises in order to get help to bail us out of trouble, but because we love him. You see... Crises of themselves do not automatically turn people into seekers. In fact, they leave many people less inclined to seek him fervently, precisely because he hasn't appeared to come through for them in the way that they'd hoped. Sometimes it takes a low tide to realise that we've been chasing after something that was ultimately worthless. We're back at the idea we looked at in part one, of praying amiss and aiming at things that are, as Lewis calls them, just a frail folklore image. Jesus reminds us that the spirit is everything and the flesh counts for nothing. It's hard for people in an age of sophisticated computers and advanced scientific discoveries to accept that. It's so obvious that the flesh clearly has achieved a great deal. And yet it's Jesus who says, the spirit is everything, and the flesh counts for nothing. He's working by a different set of measuring scales, and we need to align our hearts and our thinking with his weighing machine. Let's contrast for a moment the seeking of God that we're reading about here with the profoundly satirical taunt song that we find in Isaiah 44 which is a carefully observed and brilliant expose of the manufacturing process of idols. And it ends with people bowing down to a block of wood that they've made for themselves. The prophet spells it out clearly. It's only a block of wood. This is the rational thinking of the Lord and his prophets describing things as they really are, as the Lord always does. But you see... Most people today prize rational thinking and look on it as being something detached from God, as being in opposition to it. Rational thought didn't originate with the Enlightenment, as many people assume with Descartes saying, I think, therefore I am, because in fact Descartes got it completely the wrong way round. It's because we are that we think. And the Lord has made us, in his own image, to be able to think. And when the Lord speaks, he spells things out, as they really are, black and white, so we can see and understand. What I think was happening at that time was that Descartes was taking an entirely understandable stand against the prolonged wars of religion which had ravaged Europe for so long. And so Descartes was simply trying to make people think along rational rather than violent lines. Now there's no question that multitudes today have turned away from seeking God because they've been so put off by what they've seen by way of lack of love and sheer prejudice in the church. Now by contrast, Francis de Sales, the very godly Bishop of Geneva, who in fact was unable to operate from that city at all because of Calvin's entrenched opposition to anything Catholic, was taking a stand insisting on the primacy of love. And his first requirement in appointing anyone as a priest was that if they didn't actively love Protestants, then they weren't allowed to minister at all, because he was refusing to perpetuate all that prejudice. And the words that he spoke continue to this day to be a feast of wisdom. And for those not familiar with his ministry, I'm in the process of putting together a collection of some of his sayings. You're in for a treat there. Keep a lookout for them on our website. None of us can live without love. But what matters is that we direct our love towards a worthy object. Devotion is that spirit that inspires us to love and honour God, ourselves and one another, not grudgingly, but with a willing heart. As Francis of Sales put it, love and goodness are as closely allied as flame and fire, and genuine devotion towards God, seeking him, should extend to every single aspect of our life. It should shape our personal lives and our professional careers. And it's a great sadness to God, and indeed to godly souls, that devotion is so little practiced in every home or in every walk of life. Mind you, as he goes on to warn, all of us depict devotion according to our own preferences and fancies. So some people who fast believe that they're devout simply because they are fasting, even if their hearts are full of hatred. Such a person may not even moisten his tongue with water, and yet they won't hesitate to plunge it into his neighbor's blood through slander and calumny. Another considers themselves devout because they are full of prayers, and yet they speak so arrogantly and contemptuously to their employees or to their neighbours. Another person, he says, will gladly take arms from his wallet to give to the poor but refuse to draw kindness from their heart to pardon their enemies. Still another person will pardon easily, but refuses to pay their creditors unless they're compelled to do so by law. All these people may be known for being devout, but in reality, they're not so. It's so easy to judge others for the way that they express their devotion and deem it to be inferior to our own. The business of finding fault is very easy. The business of doing better rather more difficult. And the one who could take away rash judgment from the world would take away from it a great part of its sins and iniquities. We accuse our neighbours for so little and we excuse ourselves for so much but those who pay attention to their own consciences will rarely fall into the sin of judging others in such a way. Whatever you see your neighbour doing, try to interpret it in the best manner possible. When something doesn't make sense to people and to certain would-be scientists, don't discard it as being a useless mistake. It may actually serve a vital purpose even as supposedly useless things like the appendix in the human body turns out to be a storehouse of really useful bacteria that helps us recover from illnesses. Some things are completely obvious what they're there for. Others take some serious figuring out. There are snake venoms, for example, that can actually serve as life-saving antidotes to otherwise deadly conditions. There are plants that look ugly, but which possess the most astonishing healing properties. Now, because God's ways are so much higher than our own, we'll never get to the bottom of all of this, as the Lord warns in Isaiah 55, 9. But this we can trust and rely on, as Proverbs sixteen four spells it out, that the Lord has made everything for its purpose. Yes, even the wicked for the day of trouble do you remember how the lord told pharaoh that he'd raised him up that he might demonstrate his power and strength through him and so that his name could be known and declared right across the whole earth that's in exodus 9:16 in other words what looked like a purely local problem had global implications and ramifications that we continue to look to today. Truly, as it says in Psalm 76.10, God can make even the wrath of men praise him. In other words, even the blind fury and hostility that's directed against the Lord and his people can yet furnish the Lord with the opportunity to do great things. And to turn matters round in such a way as to bring him praise and honour. This is raw, nitty-gritty stuff. It may not feel like it at the time, but what the Lord cannot turn around for good, he doesn't allow to happen. He's careful in the things he allows to come our way. It's mind-blowing the extent to which he's prepared to bear with people and institutions and regimes that are completely contrary to his way of thinking. It's astonishing. Romans nine twenty-two. Seek me and live, urges the Lord. But the essence of idolatry is to draw people into something very different. And Isaiah's lament and complaint was that the people had no understanding or discernment in their hearts to realize just what it was, all that it was that they were missing out on. That's why it's so important to do all we can to tell people about the Lord and to urge them to seek him. They may not know how to do so for themselves or be inclined to do so. And the Lord needs us to be there to point people in the right direction. You remember how when Jeroboam was leading many people into idolatry, those from every tribe of Israel whose hearts were set on seeking the Lord Again, we're back with the concept of backash. These were the ones who followed the Levites to Jerusalem. And that's where they offered sacrifices to the Lord, the God of their ancestors. And the contrast is so clear between the faithful and the unfaithful. Those people who made their way to Jerusalem to seek the Lord remind me of the verse in Psalm 110 that the Lord's troops, the Lord's people will be ready on his day of battle. May we be of that number. None who are impure or who are idol worshippers will be allowed into the holy heavenly city. None who bow down to another god and say, You are my god. Idolatry is irrational, but through self-hardening and constant repetition, it causes the eyes of our mind to become shut. Now, literally in the Hebrew, that word shut means to be plastered over or smeared. It blinds our eyes and distorts our discernment until people reach the reprobate state that Paul describes so graphically in Romans 1. Let's pray for people to have a heart to seek after God and that even the things that they see in nature documentaries or the fresh new scientific discoveries that they hear about will help them not to rejoice in the cleverness of their own minds and achievements, but to discern the hand of God at work. Then there's no danger of idolatry, just so long as people realise that this calls for a personal response. So many people shut their eyes to the obvious and come up with alternative explanations, anything rather than accept that God is God. And when that happens, what people are really doing is to be feeding on the wind, as Hosea puts it, or in Isaiah's delightful language, herding ashes. How foolish when we seek happiness in some belief or practice or superstition that excludes the maker. But as we look around the world, we grieve at just how many societies are being encouraged told to live in ways that the scriptures flatly contradict and beliefs and practices are imposed on the citizens which are in reality lies. The great charge Isaiah makes is that none considers this in their hearts. The great question then is whether people can muster the discernment and the courage to accept that they may have been mistaken in their whole way of seeing the world. Now there's no way that such a reversal, such a process, can happen lightly. I'm currently reading the testimony of a woman who was a teacher in a Japanese school during the Second World War. And she was devoting all her considerable time and effort to furthering the cause of the emperor. She lived for the nation. Just imagine what a shock it was for her and for so many like her when Japan was defeated in the war and American censors from the Army of Occupation insisted that large chunks of all Japanese textbooks be crossed out and no longer taught. I've written about this in the section The Wider Picture in Veil of Tears on the profound shock it was In a similar way, for millions of people in Germany to discover that their Führer had fundamentally misled and deceived them from the outset. I wonder if it'll be the same in Russia today. It was like helping people in Germany who'd been caught up in a cult to emerge from underneath its all-pervading shadow whose ideas and dictates had affected every part of their life. Now, in the event... Many faced up to it very honourably. Others were unable to accept it. And that's why the Nazi threat remains valid to this day and dangerous in all kinds of ways. All this contrasts with the rest of Isaiah 44, which goes on to talk about the Lord, the Maker, stretching out the heavens, and who in his great mercy sweeps away our sins. All those craftsmen of idols worked so hard to make their idols, but all their creations will be swept away. On the day when, at the end of Revelation, we hear that the books are opened and every deed we have done is examined, and the Lord seeks and searches out the words and attitudes that were in our hearts and all becomes clear. No wonder Isaiah is so often referred to as the fifth evangelist. Praise God for those who refuse to take offence at Jesus during their low tides and times. When he said, blessed are those who are not offended by me, another way of saying that would be to turn it round and say, blessed are those who refuse to stop seeking God when obstacles and opposition come their way. Even if, deep down, they may be tempted to feel that God could have saved them from these things. It takes such grace to keep seeking when there are big shadows hanging over us. Think of David being promised as a young man that he would one day become king, but finding himself obliged to flee for his life and to live as an outlaw being hunted for his life by his former employer in the wilds of Judah. And even though the Lord gave him the clearest of directions at times for attacking this or that city and to do or not to do certain other things, The fear of being betrayed and tracked down must have dogged and overshadowed his days. But isn't it the sheer vulnerability of his plight that makes us identify so deeply with the Psalms that he wrote? One could question, though, whether he continued to seek God quite so faithfully and so earnestly when things became somewhat easier for him later on. It's so easy to become complacent until some such episode as David faced when his son Absalom revolted against him, kick-started his seeking again. In times of anguish and anxiety, may the Lord give us the faith to proclaim as David did. I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills his purposes for me. To all intents and purposes, it couldn't have looked as though he was fulfilling anything at such times, but he was. And so David avoided succumbing to the devil's razor-sharp weapons, discouragement and despondency, and all those other deadly foes of faith that John Bunyan describes in his Pilgrim's Progress. And how grateful generations of readers can be that Bunyan remained faithful, even though the authorities constantly tempted him during his many years of imprisonment, that if only he would agree to stop preaching then he could have his freedom back again. May the Lord grant us more of these people's patience and persistence in seeking God when it would be less costly to do otherwise. These were the people who got on with the real business of seeking God from day to day, toughing it out in sun-baked wildernesses, local jails, or following in the footsteps of multitudes of missionaries who've left a relatively cosy existence in order to take the gospel to people and places that really needed to hear it.